In this podcast, I speak with Nielsen's global intelligence leader, Scott McKenzie, on what we can expect as the CPG retail industry emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic. Based on Nielsen's global research of companies and consumers around the world, including countries that are further along the road in terms of opening up their businesses. We cover the various mixed scenarios that we can face depending on which direction the pandemic takes, as well as how consumers will shop differently post-pandemic. Scott also provides recommendations for how retailers and brands can effectively engage consumers as we pass through the various stages of recovery. Lots of great and timely insights here. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Joe with ECRM here, and I have with me today Scott McKenzie, the Senior Vice President of Global Communications for Nielsen. And today we're going to talk about uh, what life beyond COVID-19 is going to be like for retail and CPG. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Joe. Always good to see you. So I uh, watched your podcast, your uh, webinar, and uh, lots of great information in there. And what I thought was really interesting is the fact that you guys are in a unique position uh, because of your global reach to really see what's going on in those countries that where this is kind of already passed, and you know, and and really analyze the different stages. So that really puts it in perspective because it's a moving target. So can you give a little background on that research that you've done, where you've done it, and kind of how that all has factored into to your learnings? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been a, a fascinating sort of period in time. So, so my team, the global intelligence team at, at Nielsen, has, has really been tracking this story since, since January. You know, when we started to see the, those real escalated levels uh, of infection coming out of China, and then that flow-on that we inevitably saw in markets as varied as Iran and, and Italy. Um, so what we started to do, um, by virtue of that footprint that you, you just described, was, was to look at what some of the leading indicators might be. So using particularly mar markets like China and South Korea as our sort of canaries in the coal mine to some extent, to get hints on what we might expect elsewhere in the world and how consumer behaviors changed along the way. And what was just extraordinary to me, I thought, because, you know, and, and you know this well, as you, as you try to make comparisons of consumer behaviors, particularly on a global basis, that's, that, that, that's very rare that you see high levels of overlap or, or repeat. In this instance, we saw incredible levels of repeating behaviors, almost no daylight. Um, and, and I think in part that was driven by consumer behavior that was responding to the news cycle. Um, so you saw purchase patterns um, in supermarkets around the planet being reflected against news cycles. That could be a, a, a Trump press conference, that could be a CDC announcement, a WHO announcement, but uh, being able to interpret what was going to happen next um, became almost magical because we, we, could, we at first we thought it was you know, some, some flukes, and then we saw that there was just true consistency, which got very powerful as we started to, to hit the storm of, uh, of COVID-19 spreading through the world and trying to help you know, companies understand how to navigate it, which uh, it, it is something everyone's hoping to do right now. Gotcha. Can you talk about some of those behaviors, those consistent behaviors? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there was sort of the obvious ones that we were all a part of, you know, at first, those that panic buying, uh, the, the pantry stocking, uh, which happened pretty much everywhere except China. Um, so China really sort of jumped straight from um, normal life into lockdown life because the country responded uh, at, at an incredible uh, rate of speed. So we didn't see sort of, Nielsen had identified sort of six early you know, behavior types, these thresholds of behavior. And you know, essentially China jumped straight to four. But elsewhere in the world, we saw people stocking up on the essentials, so the pantry items like pastas and rice and things like that. And once they'd gotten some of those basics out of the way, we then saw a very natural progression to health-minded buying, so things like thermometers, um, preventative things like vitamins, um, paracetamols, you know, things that people were, 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 were putting aside to be able to protect their family and themselves um, if they were struck by the virus. And then at the same time, we, st we started to see behaviors reflecting people not being out people being you know, locked in their home for extended periods for weeks and now months in some cases. Um, we saw a shift very much to home cooking. We saw that in China particularly where you know, that's continued. We're seeing consumers there still displaying behaviors that are, they call them homebody behaviors, um, where, where they're cooking more. They're, they're taking more at-home entertainment. Um, and they're generally not going out as often, perhaps because they've become used to it perhaps because there are elements of health concerns that remain, but definitely some habits are starting to stick. Those purchase habits are starting to stick in some instances. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, uh, one of the things that I've seen uh, is how some of the categories of products that were deemed non-essentials in the beginning eventually started becoming essentials. Like, for example you know, hair coloring, right? Uh, from your data a little while ago, it just started exploding, which makes sense because now people are starting to see their gray roots come out in, uh, in their Zoom videos or whatever, you know, and, and toys, you know? If you're locked home with your kids, you can be sure that toys are going to become essential items. And then other things like, you know, um, in the neighborhood, you know, a lot of people are starting to do arts and crafts like i have a friend of mine who's painting rocks and and just leaving them in different places or you have the whole rainbow thing where you know chalk people are doing chalk designs in the streets so are you seeing that in the data too i'm not sure about the painting rocks part in the data but we are we're definitely seeing changes in habit and i maybe need to look at the hair coloring thing as my gray hairs start to creep through but but what we are seeing um as you say or or pivots in what people are considering essentials or things that they perhaps have, have never used or rarely used. So hair coloring is a good example of that. Um, and, and, you know, there are knock-on effects that may come with that as well. Um, perhaps some people are happy with their ability to, to color their own hair at home. Perhaps some people have discovered they're actually not bad at cooking and understanding how to use ingredients. We're certainly seeing, you know, sort of massive spikes in things like yeast for home baking um, and, and lots of sort of foundational ingredients that classically folks would have avoided um, or they went more for ready-to-eat options uh, or even ready-to-heat options, which is, is far less appealing 
in an environment right now where people are uh, adverse to going to the store uh, in ways they never have been before. So we're seeing that reflected in basket sizes. So firstly, people are going to the store less often, but when they do go to the store, they're buying more products. So they're stocking up and they're also buying bigger pack sizes as well. And of course, we've seen that pivot to online that's come along for the ride, sort of big spikes around online uh, penetration levels. And then a gravitation, you know, sort of you know, to your more community-minded thinking as well. Perhaps your, your, your friend with the rock painting is, is, is down this road. But just a, a gravitation to supporting local products mm-hmm. um, it has become really important. I think of my, even this week, you know, I live you know, between London and Oxford in the UK. And you know, in my small village, yesterday alone, I had a delivery of a farm box and I had a delivery from, from a tomato farm. Um, and I was excited. I was super excited for them to arrive. Like, that was a big part of my day. That was a reward. I don't think I would have been that excited by a vegetable box arriving in the past. So you are seeing these shifts in how we think and how we prioritize. You know, that's certainly case, the case for me. Um, I live in a New York apartment and uh, where we have tomatoes, not tomatoes. We could actually have that... <laughs> And uh, it's funny, I've never had that opportunity to actually have that contrast here. No one all day. But uh, we have, uh, I've never, I have a small, you know, two-bedroom apartment, and I've never really pantry filled, and I've never, ever cooked frozen vegetables until this whole thing happened. But the thing is, now I'm loving it. I love them. I've realized how convenient they are, and it's really changed the way I cook uh, myself, I mean, I still rely heavily on the George Foreman grill, and I haven't opened my, uh, you know, oven yet. I mean, my stove, yeah, my oven. I don't bake, don't do anything like that. But it's just amazing how things have changed, and these are habits that are going to last. They're going to carry over once this is done. Yeah, I mean, the frozen food you mentioned, uh, you know, our numbers. I mean, the Nielsen numbers are just reflecting extraordinary um, and somewhat sustainable at this point growth rates around frozen foods. Um, and, I, and I think in part it's an, a, a, an ability to shop less often so you can buy frozen food, put it in your freezer, and you know, it gives you sustainable fresh vegetables or frozen fresh vegetables, uh, for example, over time. But it's also discovery. And you say, said yourself, you know, you've never really cooked with frozen vegetables before. And I think there are whole generations probably who've, who've not cooked frozen before. And we're seeing that this is not just a U.S. thing. We're seeing this even in some Asian markets um, where you know, a lot of people are living in in very small apartments, refrigerators and freezers are, are also quite small, um, yet we've seen increases in frozen foods in ways we, we, we've never had before. And when we've surveyed those people and talked to them about you know, what they're doing and how they're experiencing it, they're acknowledging that I never really grew up with frozen food, particularly younger people. Uh, you know, they tended to go out or they tended to eat on, for the day, and, you know, buy on the go. And that's, that's really changing. And I think about it in the context of, you know, I, I, I say this a lot, but I think we're all fundamentally recalibrating our lives right now as a consequence of what's happening around us. And of course, the implications for that, you know, for business are extraordinary because if your business is not recalibrating alongside a recalibrating 
consumer, then you're going to have problems on your hands. You're going to have real disconnects in, in demand and supply. And, well, speaking of discovery, um, I'm seeing a lot, and I wanted your take on this. Uh, I think a lot of consumers are trying new products initially because they were forced to, right? Something's out of stock. You know, they're going to get the next whatever brand is available. But then they're actually, so it's forcing trial, and they're actually liking some of these new products. So uh, what are you seeing in that area uh, of, as far as people moving into new brands, new products, just to kind of uh, um, fill the gaps? Yeah, I, I mean, you've gone straight to the heart of, of one of the really big issues confronting, you know, sort of the CB, CPG community broadly, and certainly the retail community with, with, within that. Um, you know, what we've seen, first I'll tell you what we've seen, and then I'll, I, I'll tell you what I think a little bit. Well, what we've seen early on, um, and it's still being perpetuated across most categories, is, is there's two directions a consumer has primarily gone. The first is to a category leader. Um, they've done very well in most categories. People are gravitating, in other words, brands that they trust and know. And they don't particularly care what the price is, by the way. So pricing sensitivity is not really mattering uh, as much as they normally would. Um, and then the other extreme, they're, they're looking at value for money. Uh, they're looking at private labels. So, you know, what is that private label pasta, for example, that I can grab off the shelf? To your point, because it's available. So especially during those out-of-stock weeks where it was really tough to consistently get you know, what you were looking for, people did move off brands they hadn't tried before. They perhaps moved to adjacent categories even that they, they, they hadn't experienced before. So there was that notion of, of trial. I think about it almost as, as, uh, as forced disloyalty in many ways as well. So we're certainly getting questions um, from many of our clients uh, who are, who are you know, asking the question you are, how, how concerned should we be that, that people are trying something new and not returning to us? Um, what are the longer-term implications? And, and you know, what we are seeing uh, to those longer-term implications piece is that you're in parallel with those changed behaviors and in parallel with the challenges in supply that have existed now for, for many weeks, though they're, they're, they're being solved uh, quite quickly, I should add, um, in most categories. Um, in parallel with those things, you've got retailers changing the SKUs, changing their assortment in ways they, they wouldn't otherwise have done. So they're reducing the number of SKUs that are available, first, firstly, um, partly from, from a point of view of simplicity, Partly to make room for for more in demand uh, products, so that could be cleaning products, for example, right now. Um, so that's put a lot of pressure on some categories where the category leader is successful. The retailer still got an interest in in putting private label on the shelf, but those middle brands um, are really going to have to fight um, to to stay on the shelf, particularly as your the shopper generally at the moment is looking to go to one store if they can get what they need, and get home. And the retailer wants to make sure that that shopper goes to their store. So if something's out of stock, they're going to plug the holes or uh, uh, with whatever they can, whatever there's av what that's available. Uh, we've seen here on, um, like, our Rangeby platform, 
it, especially at the beginning, I mean, they were just, uh, the buyers were looking for all through the search options. You could just see what the buyers were searching for. And, you know, you could see it was those products or those categories that were in high demand. And they were just looking for any brand that had something that was available. And uh, so I, I think it's important. Uh, and I think it is going to have a, a, a lasting impact on the assortments. What about online? How does online factor in? Because now a lot of people have gotten used to buying some staples online and, you know, staples that traditionally took up a lot of space in the store. Is that going to, is there going to be a shift there as well? Oh, I think uh, there's, there's no question that you're going to see a, a, a real recalibration take place um, in the dynamic between online and, and brick and mortar. Um, you've got a lot of trial that's gone on, firstly, uh, for folks who never shopped online before, who have now gone online, been successful in their experience, uh, and are sticking. You know, we're, we're spending a lot of time right now looking at the, the repeat numbers, for example, in our e-commerce data to understand you know, not just are they coming back, but, but where are they coming back to? So what are the categories they're gravitating to? Is that changing? And certainly, you know, I, I think what's encouraging for the sake of online growth is you're seeing an expansion um, of range with the people are going after in their online shop. So it's yes, it's the staples or the larger items, as you say, that are, that are bulky. Particularly if you live somewhere like New York and you don't want to have to walk with you know, a, a, a giant pack of... You know, three liter Cokes uh, under your arm. Um, so so we, we're, we're seeing that sort of gravity uh, towards those anyway. But what's interesting is you're seeing pick up in categories that were less popular online, particularly in fresh. Um, people have perhaps tried fresh online um, for whatever reason, thinking that it, it might not be as fresh as it could be uh, because they didn't buy it that day or whatever the, the reason or rationale they had. And their experience is a positive one. So we're seeing stickiness around categories within online that, that we've not seen before. And, you know, there's, there's some variances as well as you think about categories like health and beauty that you know, ha have been challenged, uh, or at least many parts of it have been, or it's, or it's pivoted uh, to other things, like, as you said, you know, hair coloring. Um, so personal care and some of those categories are also popular online, but not always in the same way that they were popular. So this, again, it's, and I keep using this word, but it's, it, it's what we're doing. We're recalibrating. I think it's and uh, also seeing that consumers are looking for those products that are making them or bringing them a sense of normalcy. And, you know, whether it's like, you know, the hair, the hair color may be more reactive, but things like bath bombs or spa-type experiences or just anything that's going to give them something to do and, and make them kind of feel whether it distracts them or engages them or, you know, just to, to kind of get them through this. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we're, we're seeing really two kinds of, uh, of spenders uh, emerging right now. And, and when we looked at this, well, to give you a sense of how we got at it globally, you know, we first of all we looked at, at you know, on a high level, we looked at economic conditions, so things like unemployment rates, interest rates, stimulus packages, inflation, those kinds of things. Then we looked at Nielsen tracking data, so the sales data in countries around the world, 
We looked at attitudinal data, so what people said they do, and then compared to what they actually actually did. Um, and we got underneath that by looking at, at what the health management environments were. So having done those three things, we then said, all right, well, what are the characteristics that consumers will adopt? And it really went a couple of ways. It was to a constrained consumer, those newly unemployed, I think, you know, as we speak, the number in the U.S. is, is something like 36 million people. Um, so that's a that's sort of that constrained spender that's either been on a borderline of being a constrained spender or is suddenly thrown into a constrained spending environment, which will only be amplified as recessionary sort of impacts start to, to kick in. And then on the other extreme, to your point about, you know, how people are treating themselves and thinking about looking after themselves, there's, there's, there's more of sort of an insulated spender. And that's, you know, that's people like us. We have jobs, thankfully. We have health care. We have, you know, a security blanket of sorts that allows us, particularly as we spend more time at home, um, to treat ourselves. We might, you know, we're probably not going to take an expensive summer vacation uh, overseas. Um, we're, we're, we're certainly not spending money on commuting uh, or dry cleaning or all of the costs that come with a day-to-day -day life pre-COVID. So we've probably got more discretionary spend than we had before. And so we are seeing, seeing a little uptrading going on in some categories, you know, perhaps I'll buy a nicer bottle of wine or a nicer cup of meat. Um, and, and, and the premium treats are probably something we're going to see for some time in this environment. People won't go make a big purchase, like a brand new car perhaps, or if they, when they do, they'll be giving it much more consideration than they normally would. But those small risk-free or low-risk treats are definitely something we're seeing. And that's everywhere in the world we're seeing that, I should add. It's funny, you just nailed my shopping behavior because I was thinking, you know, wow, I, I looked at my bank account and I'm like, I haven't made a withdrawal in like two months. And, you know, sure, I use my credit card for uh, around the neighborhood. But the other thing is, I'm not going out on a Friday night. So when I go to my organic market around the corner and I see that nice organic grass-fed strip steak, I'm like, you know what? It's 17 bucks. But if I went out for dinner or, you know, went to the restaurant or for takeout, which as a New Yorker, we do a lot, it would be a lot more than that. So it justifies these purchases. And not only that, it's probably a lot healthier for me too, you know, and then, you know, not going out drinking and hanging out with my friends. And, you know, there's just, there is a big savings there. So it, it has let me kind of splurge a little more in those things that I would just make for myself in the house. So it's, you nailed it right, right there with me. <laughs> it's a richer, healthier Joe. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm getting more sleep now. You know, it's, it's just, you're right. All those things that you don't, you don't have to travel. I mean, I work from home anyway for the past six years when I'm not working out of my suitcase. So it's just the time savings and it does And all of that kind of <clears throat> combines to, to really change the lifestyle. So, Looking out into the future, um, you know, how, so right now you have, you know, we're in a state where we're kind of starting to try to open up, but there's so many what ifs, you know, and you talked about the mixed scenarios and, you know, what if we have another wave, you know, what if it goes away? What if there are so many things we don't know over the next few months, 
how do you navigate that and 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 what are your thoughts and what's going to happen as we're five months out six a year out you know next year yeah it's um you know, this is something we've spent a lot of time working on and 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 understanding because it's a question that you know, every company is, is trying to crack the code on right now um and we're thinking about it really in, in in three time horizons at least three time horizons in which we feel comfortable projecting um the first is around quarter and, and i should say we develop these on a global basis so each country will will, will will be in a different uh scenario the first is quarter three the most optimistic of them where you know, the economy starts to regenerate Retail reopens at scale, schools reopen, um, infection rates, the R rate, that curve is, is massively flattened. Uh, you're, you're seeing health services coping in a way that uh, is, is balanced. Um, so you're seeing characteristics and attributes of behavior alongside that, purchase behavior, I mean. So consumers will sort of still be gravitating to things like essentials, but they won't be... Um, 100% focused on them. There'll still be those other treats, perhaps of the kind you, you described. Um, knowing that there will be this ongoing, almost I call it a, a barbell effect, where it's weighted on, on either end, that insulated and, and constrained spender. But as you move into quarter four, and we're call, calling that sort of a, you know, a, a reboot, um, the first quarter three is more of a rebound. Quarter four is more of a, of a reboot for sure, where, where characteristics start to change of consumers uh, and the circumstances around them start to change. So that could be, as you say, that could be a second wave. Um, that could be a, an isolated second wave. Perhaps that's in a, a handful of states um, that you see that second wave break out. But there will be trigger points along the way that increases tensions and that means increasing or decreasing i should say consumer confidence which decreases you know our desire to reach into our wallets and and spend and then you reach into next year and that's the third scenario that that we've built um which is which is fundamentally different it's a it's a reinvent scenario and it takes you through really to the end of quarter two of next year uh, and that's a point not just of, of constrained spending for some this is dire. This is they're incredibly dire circumstances. It's you know it, it's people on food stamps at scales that are absolutely uh, you know at scales we've never seen before, um, and with no end in sight. Um, so as we look at unemployment levels and youth unemployment levels in particular, um, running to you know in that sort of twenty to twenty four. Uh, age group even, you know, those who are in college or about to come out of college and look for, for jobs. I mean, th those numbers even now are running at about 30%, I think, if, if, if we looked at them on the end of April. So those sorts of numbers we've never seen before. And there's this, there's this desire out there, I think, for, for comparisons to be made because people are looking for comfort. Oh, so what happened in 2008, 2009 in the Great Recession? What can we learn from that? What can we take from that? And there are certainly some baseline uh, pieces that we can learn from that. But employment alone was a very different story then. It was, I think it peaked out at about 10% unemployment, give or take, um, versus today we're at roughly 15% in the US already. So that's one thing. But comparisons to past recessions, um, 
it's just really hard to put this against the past recession. Billions of people weren't locked in their homes for weeks. Millions of people weren't infected with a deadly virus. Thousands weren't dying every single day. I, I, I just don't think it's a fair comparison. I understand why people are looking for, for surety uh, and, and, and something to anchor themselves to, but I, I don't think those comparisons are, are particularly uh, helpful given the framework that we, we have in front of us right now of, of an ongoing health crisis that will never go away until we get a vaccine, which means consumer confidence can't be there until we get a vaccine. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, it, 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 looking out, it's got to be a little tough, you know, because so many, so many of those different things can, can uh, happen. But, um, you know, what would, and putting recommendations must be challenging as well, but what kind of recommendations would you make for retailers and brands in how to best prepare for or adjust for these future phases that that may happen yeah i mean it's a good question and we, you know, what we've tried to do is identify um, uh, guidance that runs through all of those phases because some countries will experience all of them um they'll, they'll go through you know that that gentle rebound right through to the the, the chaotic and difficult reinvent scenario others will leapfrog but some may even go backwards if there are second phases of of, of infection spikes but you know, one thing that I think is fundamental um, to, to any product uh, and to any retailer right now is a culture that we're seeing of, of a demand for authentication. And what I mean by that is consumers are looking to understand the products they purchase and what they do for them, so the efficacy of those products in ways they never had before. So think about things, for example, like brand claims on the products. If I want to go into a store, and I want to go into a store less often than I have in the past, I want to get in and out quickly. So I've got to make some decisions quickly on what I put in my basket. Um, make it easy. That brand claim, if it kills 100% of germs, I want to know that. Because that's for me right now. I may not care as much if the brand claim is, help save the planet. Because I, though I love the planet, I want to save my family first and the planet second so so that reprioritization of, of brand position is going to be critical from a retail perspective thinking about how to reposition in a way that provides uh, absolute surety that the retail shopping environment is as safe secure um, hygiene um, uh, hygiene optimized uh, as possible because that authentication to me is everything right now in my purchases, in my experiences. So I, I, I think that's something that if any brand or retailer um, has a question on where to start, that would be my starting point. Excellent. Well, great. Well, Scott, thank you so much for all of these insights. I really enjoyed the conversation. And for everybody who's watching, we will have a link to the webcast that Scott did uh, a couple of uh, last week, I believe it was. And uh, in that webcast, he talks about all of this data that this discussion was based on. So, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe. You too. Stay safe. Stay sane. Good to see you, Joe. And thanks well, for having me. I'll try to stay sane. That's, that's going to be a little tough. <laughs> Take care.